Good evening, uh, girls. Once again, here with Girls Must Talk with Mrs. Gertz. Today we have uh, another interesting guest. Her name is Bracha, Bobby Bracha. And Bobby Bracha is a very interesting uh, personality person that she's gone through many changes in life. Um, she will tell us all about it since she was a little girl. Then when she got, when she was a little bit um, more in the teenager and university level, and then how she came from New York all the way, did her journeys in America, and now Baruch Hashem, she lives in Yerushalayim, where, where home really is. Okay, Bracha, uh, Bobby Bracha, uh, you are now uh, here, and we want to say good evening, and tell us a little bit about you, um, how you grew up, what you have seen in the world, and what good advices you can give the girls. Shalom Aleichem, everybody. Good evening. I'm in the beautiful, amazing home of all the Jews, and I have this um, whole wall that I'm looking out from my office, or a completely glass wall, where I'm looking out at Yerushalayim with the light sparkling at night in all different colors. And it's an amazing thing. It changes your, your thoughts and your feelings, so you have to forgive me that I'm very excited about where I am and the effect it is on on how I think about everything looking back at my own life. And Shoshana should be well. Uh, are we calling you Shoshana? Amen. Yes, thank you. Yeah. This is, yeah, Shoshana Gertz. Yes, Mrs. Gertz. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you can call me just Bracha. I happen to be a great-grandmother, which Bobby, you, know, you don't have to do very much Bracha. about that. Once you have one, and yeah. the kids take care of that part. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> but I, I'm very blessed to have uh, many uh, uh, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and many of them living here, in fact, even nearby me. So that wasn't always the case since I lived in so many places in the United States for different reasons. Sometimes my kids followed me to where I was when they were older, and, and of course, when they were younger, we all packed and moved together. Uh, I'm trying to think of what, maybe, okay. So you were going to tell us that... Forgive me for trying to collect my thoughts a little bit, because you asked me, well, when a person has lived this long, I found out you get a different, um, maybe you call it a camera or a lens on your life, because there's so much that's happened, and the memories come rushing back. I'm trying to think of what's important to share with people that well, they may find touches their life. I want to say that I'm, since I don't know who I'm speaking to except young Jewish women, I, I hope maybe mothers, grandmothers, teenagers, perhaps you're like me looking for exactly what you feel you're doing here in this world. I even have a friend here in this building in Yerushalayim who was a doctor. Now she does something else. Um, she, she made Aliyah, came to Israel with her family, and she asked me, I should tell her what is her 
our mission in life. Mm -hmm. So I've been spending like a year or so always trying to hear things that might connect with her. So far, I haven't. <laughs> so I want to say that I'm I'm speaking from my heart of, of my own life and experience what is very meaningful to me, but I hope it connects with others. And the, our, our Torah says, and Shoshani will correct my, uh, correct my pronunciation if I say something that isn't exactly no, very good. like an Israeli pronunciation. Yeah. But it means words that come from the heart go into the heart. Beautiful. Now, I have found that uh, sometimes in my life, people who don't want to communicate, you know, you all perhaps have family members that you have a trouble talking to. But if you take a minute or two and really tune in and say, I really, really want to share this, I hope they take it in the spirit. I mean it. Yeah, yeah. So, I Bracha. Say that I'm very, very thankful yeah. for living this long. I'm in my 80s. Wow, Bracha um, Shem, till 180. My great grandchildren love to remind me how old Beautiful, beautiful. When I look in the mirror, I'm not quite sure who that is. <laughs> <laughs> I basically recognize my voice. So you, Bracha, so, Bracha, so you told us. Often are fooled that my voice sounds much younger. So let's. God, because I know how to use my voice. Very good. So tell I us a little bit. You, uh, tell us a little bit. No, no, I want you to tell us a little bit. You told us once, you told me that. Uh, you were with your mommy in, you know, in New York, and you saw interesting things happening in that beach. What did you see? It was uh, 1942, you said? Oh, you want, you want to say when I was sitting on the beach with That's, my mother in the pool? Yes, yes, yes. Mother, From there. The had already begun, and we called it there. Now, now it's not politically correct to call it Indian summer. We have to call it. Native American summer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We so, used to call Indian summer. I don't really know where that concept comes from. So what happened? The idea that when you think summer is over and school has started and it's just about fall, mm -hmm. but then the heat returns so yeah. that the summer tells you, I'm not done with you yet. And in those days, 1942, uh, oh, air conditioning was almost non-existent. Maybe in some of the movie houses it could have been. Mm -hmm. They had some sort of air conditioning. But in your home, even if you were well off, maybe you had some fans. And so it was very hot. And they, in school, you already started school. It was very hot. And my mother was very, had a wonderful way of understanding and appreciating how we felt and, and uh, loving to be with nature, especially uh, the Atlantic Ocean, the beach. And nobody was there at that time. Everybody, you know, all the people are all back to work and, or in school. And nobody thought of saying, it's so hot, I'm going to go cool off. And there were no uh, lifeguards anymore because summer was over. And what happened? Mm -hmm. And it could have been early October. Mm -hmm. And usually my mother came at least with one of I'm one of three girls. I'm the baby. Mm -hmm. And they still call me the baby sister. Mm -hmm. and, but uh, usually the other girls came, or my 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 next two oldest sister. But this time it was just my mother and I. 
and you, I just, uh, we were careful because of safety, and the water wasn't terribly rough. You know that the water in the Atlantic Ocean, here's a trivia, mm-hmm. becomes warm in the fall. Yeah. Because it is from, in the summer, you're swimming in the melting, uh, 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 what do they call the, the glaciers are melting in the, um, in the Arctic, and that water is coming down at the Atlantic Ocean very cold yeah. in the summer. Mm-hmm. It can certainly cool off. Yeah. But anyway, so we would go and we would dunk in our dresses just near the edge, not to be doing anything very dangerous, and swim a little bit, and then sit on the beach in our dress to let it dry. Mm-hmm. And not these girls wore dresses, by the way. Yeah. And until the 19... 19- Sixties, I think, even in the university where one of the university attended University of Michigan, they didn't care what you came to class in skirts. I were boys there too who did not come to class in skirts. Mm-hmm. It was different times then. I'm just kidding around. And you and you, it could be four degrees below zero, and you wore a long skirt, and maybe knee socks. I don't even think they had warm. Things and you rode your bicycle off of the big campus in a skirt. Mm-hmm. But back to the beach in October in 1942. And I'm sitting there quietly drying off. And my mother turns and she sees two men with long back, black coats. My family is not going to want to hear this because they've heard this story so many times. Um, in, in long black coats, and they setting up a tripod camera so that you could get from where we were sitting, you could see quite a ways down the Atlantic coast, almost to Long Beach, mm-hmm. from the Atlantic Beach area. Mm-hmm. And they were setting up a tripod. They didn't have the little cameras in those days. And they, they were trying to get the whole coastline picture. And you could see that's what they were doing, but that wasn't unusual to have a tripod to take a picture in those days. But to my mother, it was a total alert. Alert. Mm-hmm. It was, uh-oh, it's wartime. Yeah. These men are speaking German. My mother understood Yiddish, or spoke Yiddish, and she understood what they were saying yeah. pretty much. But what he said right away is, and my mother was not a very big woman. She's what well, you know. I was like grew up to be five foot five. She was five foot. She pretended to be five foot one. <laughs> so that was and one beautiful experience. And she walks over to them with this delicate little woman with flowing blonde hair and big blue eyes. Mm-hmm. Perfect Aryan, my mother. <laughs> And she stuck her finger at them, and she said, you can't do that. There's a war on. You're not allowed to take pictures. Mm-hmm. I think she may have also said it finish. I don't know, but I remember that's what I heard. Well, they looked at each other, and they talked to them, went blah, blah, blah to each other. They closed up their cameras, and they ran towards the, where the beach ends in the back. There was a road, and they jumped in the car that looked like something from one of those 1930s movies and drove off. Wow, how interesting. And my mother reached her hand out to me and said, Bracha, come on. In those days, was no, we didn't have cell phones. I don't know if you know there was the world before cell phones. Hmm. 
So tell us. Even there was a time when there would have been an emergency foam hanging on a post at the beach, but that was before then as well. Okay, so, so now tell us a little bit. Hands had come and we had our car, yeah. and she drove to the nearest telephone booth. Very nice. Which was like you see in the Superman movies with the glass yeah. doors where he changed his clothes, but I don't know how, why people didn't see what he was Tell us a little bit about your Yiddishkeit experience, your journey, your Yiddishkeit experience. How, how did you get to Okay, but I'll tell you a bit, they caught the spies. You want to know how they caught the spies? Well, oh, yeah, sure, the sure. The police said, come down. I was five years old and a little bit embarrassed that my mother thinks she's me spies. But I was very bright for my age. And I had a sense of like, what? She's going to say I saw spies. And we went down to the police station, which is still the exact same building there to this day. Mm-hmm. And they said, come to the back. And we sat down with two or three plainclothes direct, uh, uh, detectives. And mm-hmm. I was still embarrassed that they're going to believe my mother. She saw. So she tells them what she saw. And they said, you know, that's uh, important. But how are we going to get them? Oh, wow. What are we going to do now? Mm-hmm. And she said, I memorized the license plate. Wow. wow. And we caught them in one hour. Wow. And different than today would become issues in the papers of whether they deserve the trial by American law. Wow. They just disappeared. That wow. was the end of them. I forgot about this completely. Well, I know it's true because at one time I was a little older and I was putting away uh, different clothes in different drawers of my family in the house, you know, putting, I did the folding and putting away the laundry. And I saw a, a beautiful picture with with a gold, uh, gold uh, framing and gold uh, uh, lettering and it said uh, something like certificate to a good citizen something or other from the, I think it was signed from the FBI. Oh, wow. So it must have been a big, must have been big fishes. How exciting. Then I was a little bit older. Yeah. And she said, oh, she wants to be quiet because I thought it was sure someday they're going to come after her. And this is where our family becomes very, we have a humorous uh, way of looking at the characters in my life. However, okay, that was my five-year-old experience. We were living during the Second World War. Mm -hmm. We were in the United States of America in a lovely little, um, uh, not little, uh, a sort of a colonial, nice suburban house in the five towns. And a lot of people have heard of the the Apple and Five Towns. And and, um, and my father loved to plant and um, so there was apple trees and peach trees and a pear tree and a cherry tree and he really made use of the garden. My family loved nature. Mm-hmm. They didn't copy the affluent neighbors of getting a new car every year. My father fixed what he had. Right. And it was not a life that we, well, there were airways mills. I don't know if anybody listening is old enough to know what that means. That was before there was the atomic drills that we had in school and high school. Wow. We were afraid of being bombed by Russia. And mm. I'm going back and forth a lot of years. 
Mm-hmm. But there were, but the siren went off from a nearby um, firehouse, a special siren that you knew necessarily drilled. And if you looked out, you would see uh, the uh, civil defense people marching up and down, checking that every shade had to be down. You had to be in the basement. You had to have a supply of uh, water and blankets and maybe some kinds of food mm-hmm. and just in case. And if that sounds strange, well, the planes in the Second World War didn't fly very high. Yeah. And if they saw a light on, that's how they aimed their yeah. weapons. Wow, wow, wow. So uh, we, you know, went into blackout and all. So this was a pretty regular thing to have to be living during the war. We knew that the uh, Germans had very little chance of getting here. But look, there was my mother seeing that they were preparing to come. Very good. Okay, so very interesting timings. So now but tell us a little bit. Here's the thing. At five years old, in kindergarten, yeah. But I was one of the lucky people to go to a Jewish school. Yeah. And run by an Orthodox rabbi that we loved dearly. Mm-hmm. Even though uh, there wasn't that many really um, observant Jews to teach you. Mm-hmm. So we learned what we could learn. And we learned Hebrew and, and, and Jewish history and our holidays and all. Mm-hmm. But at five years old even... Once a week, the whole school met, and they talked about the war. And one of my uh, little girlfriends in kindergarten, her father was involved in rescue work and whatever he could do. He was in the Coast Guard. And she knew what was happening in the camp in Germany. So as a child, we were very, very made aware. We were living, going to a school that was very Zionistic, set on Someday we're all going to get to Israel and try to help Jews get there and Jews get out of Europe. And my grandparents were very involved in collecting charity and trying to get Jews out and trying to help Jews who came here to live. They were very poor. The whole of Israel was not... uh, not like the five towns where I grew up. Right, right, right. It was just... Uh... Well, I was living during wartime, and yet this is my early life, that we had to defeat the Germans and defeat the Japanese. Right. And I, I still remember when the war was over. Of course, the news came in in newspapers in your house, but we watched the casualties, where were our troops, what was happening. And being told as a little girl that the... The Germans were throwing Jewish babies up in the air and catching them on their bayonet. This is still a picture in my mind till now that we didn't have any relatives in Europe that we knew of because my both sets of grandparents came in the 1880s to America. Uh-huh. So I'm like practically a blue blood, right? Yeah. On the Mayflower. Oh, very good. But they came and... and uh, much of their family had been lost at other times. There were pogroms, there was disease, there was poverty. My family was so grateful to be in the United States of America, and their life was hard at the beginning. Yeah. And the government did not give anything. Mm-hmm. So the stories about my grandparents are fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. But they basically spoke Yiddish, and I spoke English. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the way... You learn from your grandparents. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe says to be a great parent, or any parent living here, 
they're listening in and saying, you know, I wish I could impart a little bit more of Judaism to my children or what should I do? The main thing is to show the beauty and the joy of our great and precious heritage in what you do. Right. You don't have to put it always into words. Right. And because when my, my grandfather lined us all up in his sukkah and we shook a lulav and got some honey cake, and he was shining like the sun, so happy. Very and good. he wasn't looking at who was dressed like what and how much his grandchildren knew. But he had, when he came to America, that's my mother's side I'm speaking of, mm. he had um, smicha from Vilna, which means he had a rabbinical degree and was only 16 years old and had a wife and baby in Poland. Mm. And not enough money, two years he worked to bring her. Wow, amazing. And, but eventually, so she came with one baby, mm-hmm. and then after that they had seven seven more babies, and whatever, they're there. This is so interesting to me, my grandparents, at this point. Yeah. But, um, I, so I went to a Jewish school. I loved that school. Mm-hmm. I loved the fact it was full of creativity, drama, painting, art, music, and whatever, all the other subjects. That was my, one of my main interests. And I always loved history, even when it's badly taught. I was so, I would go out and get my own books and read up on it. So were there a lot of girls? What Shoshana, I think, is getting at is that how did I get from there to a family that was observing Shabbos, Shabbat? Yes and kosher, and interested in uh, in how precious our heritage was, yeah. and get from there to be a person majoring in philosophy in the university, not observing much of anything. Right. A little bit Hanukkah, mm-hmm. and if anybody, non-Jews, got after me about my Judaism, then I was like, you know, the defender of the world. You know? <laughs> At one point in, uh, when I was married to a graduate student at Yale University, and uh, a lot of Jewish students got together. We, there are a lot of Jews in the university, but not only. And a lot of them were marrying non-Jews, and I would open my mouth. <laughs> yeah. And one, one day my husband came home and said, you know, they say you're too Jewish. Uh-huh. And you know what? I was still, I was not observant. I was searching. I didn't really understand why we keep all these things. And even though I had had an early Jewish education, there weren't enough answers for my type of mind. And my my friend used to call me, here's Bracha the philosopher. So I was always asking questions. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't get really deep answers, I go, well, then if I don't know the reason why I do it, so I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and no, but it's also because of circumstances in the family where the financial situation became terrible. And we had been pleasantly well off, and then my father's business went downhill. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you didn't have money, to pay for your membership in the synagogue, you didn't go. Right. It's certainly a different world now. Nobody's mm-hmm. turned away. Mm-hmm. Nobody has asked, do you have a ticket? 
Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Of course, those escaping from Europe also had that risk. Yes. But my grand, my mother's father, the one I mentioned before, had came here a few times because he had collected tzedakah, he had collected charity to bring to the poor people in Israel and to help finance anybody that they could rescue. Mm-hmm. And he had friends, of very famous rabbis were his friends. I didn't know much about it as a child. I learned more when I was older. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, the orientation to love Israel, to see this as our, as our real home that we're always dreaming to come to. Um, I have found Jews that nothing had, had very little education. But when you mention Israel, it's somehow a part of our soul. Yes. And and if when uh, Jews could have all different opinions and different politics and what do they say two Jews ten opinions and yeah. you know all these so things. Tell us how but you became. When, you, when Israel's in trouble and we're being attacked, yeah. right or wrong, and we are always right, of course. Because we never attacking anybody else. Yeah. They don't want us here. So. Uh, then everybody's giving, everybody's praying, everybody's on one page. Exactly. And the, the real basic love of each other and of our people comes out when there's trouble. And I think, that's just to mention what is a family, I don't know who I'm speaking to. We're living in an age with so many families that have broken up and hopefully got fixed or went through different family um, challenges because we live in a world in which families are not respected very much anymore. And um, of, of the role of a mother, the role of a father, but this is where my blessings in my life come in and that my mother and father were married 67 years and were deeply, deeply in love. Mm-hmm. But you didn't always see it because they had these funny arguments. However, um, <laughs> one time I, I, my son was told at school to ask his father, and since I was divorced at the time, he asked my father, what does your wife mean to you? Or some kind of question like that. And my father was visiting. My father and mother were visiting because they did not live in New York at that time. And they and he and my father said what? And my son repeated something like, "Can you tell me what your wife is worth to you?" Something like that. Mm-hmm. And my father says, "Worth? She's priceless. She's a treasure." Yeah. <laughs> my, my son nearly fainted. Not exactly fainted, but he was like shocked. You see, all he heard was, "Why can't you make a good cup of coffee?" Or mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, things like that. Okay. But uh, I'm very blessed that I came from a family in which there was such a loving way, and even you didn't have to say it. Mm-hmm. They didn't talk in those days saying, hang, everybody hangs up the phone saying, love you. My, I never heard that in my life. Mm-hmm. A few times my father would say, I love you, mm-hmm. or God bless you. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't an age in which people talked that much about their feelings. Yeah. They just went on, and they did the best they could. Yes. And um, so tell us the, a our Shabbos table, until I was around 12, was so full of beautiful memories. So tell us a little bit about your... Amazing food. And yeah. So I, I was able to have 
something to look back to which many Jewish kids in America never had. Yes. So this is my blessing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm lying in a coma for a week. First, the doctors thought I had polio. And my mother was able to show them how I did not have polio because she had been a volunteer for a certain organization. And she told them what the a diagnosis was. Wow. So then I was put in a private room, hooked up to all kinds of tubes. And the tubes in those days, they cut open your veins and stuck them in and sewed them in. I'll tell you, I was really... I was breathing on my own, but I still recall how the pain was so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And I was, how thirsty I was, but I couldn't open my mouth and I couldn't drink and I couldn't. And I, in fact, I dreamed of a cherry tree. Mm -hmm. The cherries reached down, the tree reached down and gave me some cherries to eat because I was so thirsty that it actually was some. Like, I suppose, you know, I just dreamed it up. Very nice. But I used to dream, do a lot of daydreaming in school when it got boring. Mm-hmm. So I'm very good at that. So, Bracha, tell but, us a little bit when you were was, growing I, up. The pain was overwhelming. Yeah. And I had no concept of how sick I was. Mm-hmm. Until, I will tell you, this is what's interesting. The best I do was people are fascinated by this concept of near-death experience. Yes. Now, I have been interviewed by people who study this. Uh, my my big sister told her, they were friends of my big sister because her husband was, he passed away now too, unfortunately, was a very famous psychiatrist. And and, uh, and his, these were also psychiatrists. And they did research on effects of near-death experience on people. Mm-hmm. And I and my sister, we happened to be all having a dinner together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my sister said, tell them what happened to you. Yeah. I said, but I, I didn't die. You know, it's not like you die. You say you died, you saw this light, and you could, and, you know. Yeah. I was just hovering yes. in a coma. Yes. And people don't, so I can tell you in a coma, you see and you hear in an acute way, A-C-U-T-E, and it's not very cute. Mm -hmm. But you hear outside your room, you hear what people are saying, you even feel the vibes, like in the 60s they talked about vibes, you feel, when my mother walked in the room, I went crazy, I got in such pain, Mm -hmm. because she was, (laughs) she was my mother seeing me there, and I tuned into her feelings, and it made everything worse. Yeah. And I would start going, ah, yeah. like this, like, get her out of here. Yeah. Well, I couldn't say it. It just was yeah, yeah, yeah. the emotions. But one time in this, it was a whole, only a week. Yeah. But it was a coma. I'm not kidding. Yeah. And um, I heard when the nurses changed uh, shifts. And a nurse outside my door, it was coming out in the hallway, said something to the other nurse, like, she's still here? They took a lady lady out in the basket the other day with that. Mm -hmm. And when I heard that, I said, I'm really, you know, this isn't funny. (laughs) No, I'm just, I, I, I was really alarmed. I suddenly realized that I really was hovering between life and death. And so then I was just struggling with the pain. You just 
living second to second, trying to keep your sanity, you know. Well, I heard that I said, I never told anybody what I said, but I made a promise to God. Of course, like it says, there's no atheist in a foxhole. Yes. Because, uh, you know, um, and then when they come out, then they're atheists again. I can tell you a joke from Rich Skeleton. Did you ever hear of that comedian? No, I won't tell you. He was on a, on a plane heading for Switzerland, and the pilot announces, oh, and they were over the Alps, and the pilot says, I think we have a problem with the fuel. I'm not sure we're going to make it. Mm-hmm. And um, they got very quiet on the plane, and some people were crying, and some people were praying. And Red Skelton stood up and walked up and down. He was a very human person and trying to give people courage. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, uh, maybe half an hour later, the pilot says, it looks like we, we might just make it. I think it's going to be all right. Mm-hmm. So Red Skelton said, okay, you can take all your promises back now. Mm-hmm. So um, what happens when a person really realizes that life and death is life and death, that exactly. every moment of life is a gift? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And this is one of the main effects mm-hmm. of what they call a near-death experience. Really? When I described my, um, when I made this promise, I right away woke up. I woke up, I could talk. I had, you could call it a vision, you could say it's a hallucination, but I felt God so close. And I woke up, I could sit up, I could talk, I could eat, I could, my sister, my sister Etta, who still lives in San Francisco and helped me to get here, and I say to her, do you remember being in the room when I woke up? Because she was sitting there reading a book that I shouldn't be alone in the room. And so she remembers it very well. And I said, you know, I felt like I, 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 I said uh, the things that I saw just before I woke up, which I will not share, because she will definitely think I'm how story. But it was very, um, very amazing Mm-hmm. Revelations. Beautiful. And I made a promise that I'm still working on. Because mm-hmm. it wasn't, uh, okay, I'm going to, I don't know, lose mm-hmm. weight. <laughs> mm-hmm. no, it, was... it was an overall promise that I, I, I said to, I did say to God, and this part I never told anybody either. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm not ready to go yet. Because I don't know why I am here. Wow, that's very 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 interesting, Rafa. We're going to have to leave this uh, this this series. We will continue, and these were going to be called lessons in Emuna, lessons in connecting. You have a wonderful um, life and richness. Uh, what advice can you give? You know, we have um, two more minutes to go. What advice do you give the girls when they're feeling um, lonely? There's no support. 
They're uh, confined in their bedroom. They cannot go and see their friends in today's uh, pandemic. What? Oh, you're because of, the, of, of what's going on now. It's, yes, it's, yes. It's kind of an illusion because at this point, the statistics are practically nobody dies from it anymore, even people with pre-existing conditions. Even my um, dear friend mm -hmm. that I have been learning Torah daily with for 36 years, Beautiful. And now with WhatsApp, the miracle is we can learn for free. Yeah. Uh, and she's still in America. Yeah. She has, she is seven years younger than me, also a great grandmother, and with several different pre existing conditions mm -hmm. that would be on the list of, oh, oh you know, not going to get better. Yeah. And. Uh, she had an excellent doctor. Her her family was all around her, mm. and she is back to uh, to herself. Maybe even in certain ways better than before. Yes. So uh, there is medicine for it, and I'm sorry if I'm uh, making a political statement, but there is medication and there is treatment. And I have a dear friend who's a doctor in six hospitals in California and she knew right away from the beginning that this is partly a political ploy. Mm -hmm. So I am fortunate that I live in a building where a few of the older people and a lot of the younger people understand that we're not uh, deserting each other and even though at one point my family that lives here was put in quarantine for being exposed so I could hardly see them. Mm -hmm. um, I'm friends in the building. So what, what's the advice? On, on Shabbat, so, we we um, have one more minute. Because I do feel, I do feel this isolation. I, I know what you're asking. And yes. I have to throw in my own uh, political, my own, my own political and scientific um, discoveries. Yes. But um, it's very difficult. And um, I do think that the fact that we have this internet and, and practically everybody has some sort of a laptop or a smartphone and we can tune in with each other, yes. even live and see each other, yes. um, and we can learn the deepest, most beautiful secrets mm -hmm. of how God created the world, what yes. our soul is doing here. What is our each individual mission in life and what is our mission as a Jewish woman, mm -hmm. which is, um, by the way, this is what I would really like to talk about without going into all the details of my history, because the Jewish woman is the whole foundation of the Jewish people, and it's because of our foremothers that our people are still here, and the Torah says that. Beautiful. But most people don't realize because of the way the structure of our observances and everything, they don't see what's right in front of their face, that everything in Jewish life depends on our observance at home. Very you can go to synagogue, it's important, the yeah. prayers to be together, and just to be together as Jews and Yes. And be friendly, yes. and the idea of ten men and a minion, in which God accepts our prayers, yes. He accepts all our prayers yes. in any language. Yes. 
in any way you want to speak. Mm -hmm. He's so close that I woke up from a disease that nobody at that point had ever recovered. And they had nothing for it. And I was, uh, the world wasn't so big and crowded at the time. It was 1952. And I had five doctors, not because of my mother didn't have money to hardly pay the nurses. She paid them with coats that my father had made. It was an amazing whole situation. But these five doctors were interested to save a 15-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. That's all. They were just, the whole thing was uh, getting their interest as well because it was strange. And one, uh, two or three days I'm sitting up actually eating food. They were trying to put, take me gain weight. um, I can give you a few classes on what to do when you're dealing with being overweight all your life. So we're going to continue. Our time is up, but we will continue on our next series. Uh, Okay, so we'll finish with this doctor who said, I wanted to talk to you because I wanted to find out why you lived. And I said, well, I wanted to talk Bracha will be continuing next program. Girls, if you like this program and if you have anything you want to share with us, please write to us at um, Girls Must Talk uh, with Mrs. Gertz at gmail.com. Thank you very much, and we will be coming back uh, next week. Thank you very much, Bracha, Bobby. Very good. Which, which didn't come out very well. It's okay. It's okay. 